Please join me as I pray. Gracious God and Father, I ask that in these moments, by the power of your spirit, that we would be the sort of people that tremble at your word, that come with humble anticipation that if you are who you say you are, the God who speaks worlds into existence, and you are speaking now in our midst that we with anticipation would say, Help us not to miss it. Help us to receive it as authority in our lives. And I pray that as a result of sitting under this word, that we would be challenged and encouraged and that we would be receiving your overwhelming love in these moments. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a new experience the other night. I got lit on fire. Uh, It's true. I was hanging out with a friend in his backyard. He's got a very cool new kind of oil fire that sits on the table, and it warms you, and it creates this very cool atmosphere. It ran out, so he grabbed the jug of oil and very kind of liberally filled it up spilled over the edges. We weren't quite aware of that, but it spilled over the edges, including all over my feet, dripping through the table. And there happened to be a candle and some wind. That's a combination for some excitement. (laughs) A little gust of wind, the flame bent, and all of a sudden, all the oil went up, including the oil that had dripped down and was all over my feet. And I went, I'm on fire! I'm on fire. And he looked down, and truly there was a flame because there was a coat on my shoe of oil and it was all on fire. And I was just sitting there like this for a while, not sure what to do. Stop, drop, and roll, I guess. Or I got up and kicked my shoe off into the pool. And uh, I still got the shoe. It's pretty cool. Uh, it actually was this exact shoe. He graciously bought me a new pair because it was scarred with the fire right to the middle of it. It was definitely done. Um, a unique experience. I'd never quite had that experience before. Uh, I was flaming. I was on fire. And, uh, you know, the oil that he was so liberally pouring continued, it contained in it this latent potential that if it meets a flame, it will combust. But you see, they need one another. The, The oil and the flame had to touch, had to come together in order for this experience to this kind of like exciting, unexpected thing to emerge in our midst. And as we continue on this journey, we've been on this journey through the, the final chapters of the book of Isaiah, talking about revival dynamics. What does it mean for God to make himself overwhelmingly real to a community in a particular season or time? This is what he's speaking about in the later chapters of Isaiah, the ways that God shows up and makes himself real to the people of Israel, and the ways that he promises to do so one day through the Messiah. And what we have been articulating together is that this sort of experience, this pointed experience of God's presence and power is not something that we can demand or manipulate. It's not something, we can't twist God's arm to have this sort of moment of God's presence in our midst as a community in a season and a time. 
but there are dynamics by which we can order our lives to say, we wanna be the sort of people that are hungry for your presence and your power to move in and through us. We've been talking about this over the last several weeks, and we saw just a couple of chapters ago that humility is required. God's presence descends into the low place, into the people that are hungry and humble before him. God's presence moves among those that take responsibility for their, for their geography. The sorts of people that say, we're going to take radical responsibility for the needs of our city because we believe that your people are your answer to the heartache and the brokenness around us. And this morning, we come to, in a sense, the oil and the flame of revival. We come to two things that God's pointed movement and power run through, but only and always in conjunction with each other. The bold proclamation of the Son and the tireless petitioning of the Father. Preaching and prayer, the simple announcement of the gospel, the good, the good news of Jesus Christ with with the flame or the spark of prayer to the Father, those two things where they meet cause exciting, transformational, unexpected things to happen, but they require one another. They, they actually, like, like oil and spark, like dynamite and flame, that they, when they meet in power, cause unexpected things to happen. When we talk about the dynamics of God's power and God's presence, this morning what we're going to see from Isaiah 61 and the first few verses of Isaiah 62 is that revival flows through bold proclamation of the Son and tireless petitioning of the Father. Well, let's start by examining what does it look like, the bold proclaiming of the Son, of the Messiah, in the verses that Trudy so beautifully read for us, we start with this, this announcement that comes. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 61. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. If these words sound familiar to you, it may be because in Jesus' first sermon, this was the passage that he quoted and he said, these words are fulfilled in your hearing of them today. That these are words about the Messiah stepping into the world with hope and healing for the downcast and the heartbroken. That Jesus showed up saying, I am clothed with power to announce good news. The good news that God of the universe, the creator, has made a way home. He's made a way home for rebellious people to be covered over in forgiveness and to experience love and family and restoration and healing and joy forever. It truly is good news. And as the sun is closed with power to announce this, I think it's important for us to recognize that Isaiah is articulating this. The Messiah takes it up on his lips. And by the time the apostles are preaching in the book of Acts and beyond, what we recognize is that for all who announce the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. We stand in the same stream. We are clothed with power to announce good news. And what I want us to explore is this. Who is the audience and what does it do for them? This bold proclamation of the Son, because I think that's what these first seven verses are about. This is where we see the revival dynamics bound up in the proclamation of this good news. Who is the audience to receive this good news from Isaiah, 
from the Messiah, from you and I who stand in this flow of God's redemptive history. Well, let me just highlight for you. You'll see on the verse some words highlighted as we, as we scroll back through these verses. See who it is that's hearing this good news. He says, I bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Let's just pause with those first three. The poor, it literally means the depressed or the lowly, the ones that have no capacity to tend to themselves. The brokenhearted, in the, in the Hebrew, it carries this connotation of a shattering, the shattering of the heart. It means that the heart has been broken into so many pieces that there's a certain sense of it can never be put back together again. At least those that experience this sort of occasion, maybe you've been there, where life's circumstances, the brokenness of your journey and those around you has left you feeling so shattered where you go, could it ever be possible that these pieces could be reintegrated? He's saying, that's my audience as I come with this good news. The depressed, the shattered in heart. He says, the captives, those that have been carried away against their will, to those that are bound. Um, he goes on to say in verse three, those who mourn, those who have ashes on their head, those who are mourning, he mentions mourning three different times in this text because those are the ones that are, that are grieving. And then he comes to this point, in the, and you see this in, the, in verse 3. It says, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. You see this poor, captive, bound, mourning, ashes on the head. It says they've arrived at the place of being faint of spirit. In the, in the Hebrew, it means that uh, it's the ruach, it's the, the center of who you are, the spirit, the soul of a person has become grayscale, colorless. The idea for the, the audience that the Messiah is proclaiming good news to, he's saying your spirit has been grayed out. It feels like there's no more color or life at the core of your being. He says, this is the audience, the ones whose ancient ruins have been torn down. There's former def devastations, there's ruined cities. At the conclusion in verse six and seven, he declares that these are a people who have experienced shame and dishonor. This is the audience. So let me start by saying this this morning. The good news that is proclaimed and proclaimed frequently is for those who've come to the end of themselves. They're at the end of themselves. Their hearts are shattered. Their souls are grayscale. They feel shame and dishonor and heaviness. And they're going, we don't know the path forward. We're just stuck in our own grief. Um, I think this is a place, if we're honest, that we all try to resist arriving at. But as we've noted time and again in revival dynamics, we saw it very clearly two weeks ago. We arrived back there again today that this word of hope that Isaiah keeps putting forward, that the Messiah takes up and lights a blaze in his own ministry, he says, listen, it's for those who have recognized they can't manage by their own strength. So, to my friends in the room that felt, feel that way, hear this, this good news is for you. To my friends in the room that feel strong and like they need nothing, 
Revival dynamics are not for you. You see, the recognition is, it is as we admit and come into contact with the brokenness of the world and say, God, I can't handle it all. I am in need. That the bold proclamation of the Son begins to renew those places of our hearts and lives. To those who've grown cold to our own need, it is the regular encounter with the living God that continues to expose our need. It is as we continue to draw near to him, we recognize that even in the places where his grace has showed up in our life, we are in ongoing need of more grace because we are a people prone to wander. And listen, this is a safe place to admit that. If you feel like, man, I should be further along by now. How have I ended up back here? If you feel like, gosh, I just wish I could project or or live into the strength that I project. Hear this. It is good to come to the end of yourself. These are the individuals. This is the sort of community that God has really good news for. And do you know what the good news is? Do you know what he does for that sort of people? (laughs) Did you hear it? I just, I briefly read through it, but I want to throw those same verses up, and I just want you to see what the good news is working in the lives of the people that are at the end of themselves. A few notes about it. He says, I've come to bring good news to the poor. Interestingly, in this word that's used in Isaiah, this word for good news, it carries the connotation of ruddy-cheeked. The idea is that the one who is announcing it is so excited to let everyone know that victory has been secured, they come running in flushed of cheeks, and they're going, listen, I've got good news. Things are changing. Victory has been secured. He says he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, to those that are shattered and feel like, could it ever be put back together? What he's saying is this, I am the good physician. I've come for the sick and not the well, and I know how to bind it up. This is a gentle and firm binding, a wrapping tightly that is being done by the Messiah. He says, I've come to bring liberty to the captives. I love the imagery of this word. It is of of a bird circling and wheeling through the air. I almost crashed our car on the road to Missouri at Christmas. (laughs) I don't know that everybody was aware of that. They were more or less sleeping and playing in the back. But I was driving and this flock of like, I don't want to over-exaggerate. I also don't want to understate it. I think there was probably 14,000 birds. (laughs) I mean, they all, and they were in this free flow It's like they're flying south and they're coming in and out of one another and dipping down. And I was driving and I started slowly drifting off the road because I was just watching. I was so taken with this idea of utter and complete freedom. I can go in any which direction. They're darting in and out. It was so startling in its beauty. This is the word that he says to those of you who feel captive by your own weakness and sin. Listen, the good news is... I will set you free like that. You will soar. You will dart in and out. You will be free in me. Liberty to the captives. The opening, the opening, that that word there just after liberty is the opening of the prison. This is the only time this word is used in the whole of the Hebrew scriptures and it carries the connotation of a swinging dungeon door. It's like the creaking of it. 
You have been locked up for a long time, but no more. You're free to go. Just letting my imagination run with that imagery, I was reading stories of the first couple of days for Nelson Mandela after 27 years in prison and him walking back and forth in a small cell, reading his clips of his autobiography and just thinking, what must it have been like after 27 years of being contained? And then, and then just in a matter of moments, it actually came as a radical surprise. There was, some, there was some churning and language that he might be set free. There were promises made in the election uh, coming up to those moments, but he didn't know it was actually coming on. And the night before it, he heard, tomorrow the door is going to open. That feeling of, I thought... I was going to be here forever. It was a life sentence. Some of you, some of the shame and the dishonor, some of the brokenness and the heaviness of the world in which we live, it's just started to settle into your bones like, I guess this is a life sentence. The good news of the Messiah is, I open doors that you thought never would. It's what I do. I liberate. I open I comfort. You see, comfort comes before the gladness and the, and the clothing, of, uh, the clothes of praise. I love this, that is, he brings the oil of gladness and the garment of praise, but even before that, he comforts those who mourn. Um, this is the idea, to, to comfort those who mourn. The word for comfort literally means like a deep sigh. And I love this. He knows that he's bringing gladness and praise to your story, but he starts by coming to those who mourn and he doesn't say, put on the garments of praise, let's start dancing. He first comes and he looks people in the eye and he sighs deeply and he goes, I get it. That's probably been hard. The miracle of the Messiah is that he meets us in the pain before he delivers the praise. Do you feel the weight and the beauty of the good news that he's announcing to those that are at the end of themselves? He comes and he brings liberation and comfort and healing and he clothes us with garments of praise and he says it is no longer time for ashes on your head, it is time for dancing and by the conclusion he calls it a double portion, he calls it everlasting joy. He says you're being welcomed into my family as the firstborn that is going to receive all the blessings that are due to the firstborn. It will be everlasting joy, it is time to celebrate and it even says at the conclusion he turns turns us into ministers and priests. So the proclamation, the bold proclamation of the sun, let me tell you what it does. It comes like shifting tectonic plates underneath the surface. You know, these enormous shifting uh, plates that actually create the landscape of the world. It's almost as if they begin to shift and all of a sudden beautiful mountains exist where previously they didn't and valleys are opened up and greenlands become, become uh, exposed. And the reality is this, that where the gospel comes to those that were brokenhearted and at the end of themselves and faint of spirit, he says this announcement has within it the power to create a transformation of the landscape. There will be an uprising of beauty. There will be an exposure of my goodness. Listen, if you will come to the end of yourself, the hearing, the believing of the gospel reshapes the landscape of people's lives.
He's saying revival dynamics start with the bold proclamation of this good news. Jesus has come to make a way home for you. But in many ways, this, this oil, this oil that has within it Holy Spirit capacity, it has the potential to flame into power. We also see that in Isaiah 61 and 62, there is a means by which this latent power and beauty is lit. You see, the oil and the flame have to come together and baked into the proclamation of the gospel is this latent potential and power. But what I have experienced having had the great privilege of announcing the good news of Jesus for nearly two decades now is that I will frequently stand in a room like this and I will announce, God loves you. He's come for you. No matter where you've been, no matter how far you've gone, he's come for you. And the person in the work of Jesus Christ who lived the life you were supposed to live and died the death you deserve to die and he's resurrected to hope and he's extending to you an offer of eternal life and joy that starts today. I've announced it over and over and over again. And what is so unusual is that one person sitting in this chair will say nothing is ever going to be the same. And a person sitting in this chair over here will shrug and go, that was interesting. You see, there is a dynamic operating underneath the surface that there's a latent power in the gospel announced as you announce it to your friends in a coffee shop or in your cubicle or in your classroom, there is latent power in the gospel announced, but it, it requires something to light it ablaze. And what we see is the petitioning of the Father as we pray to him and ask him to do what only he can do with this gospel announced. This is where there is a radical move of God. And I want you to see it with me in the text. Isaiah 62 in verse 1 this is, there's some debate of, is this Isaiah speaking? Is this the Messiah speaking? Um, we're not totally sure. I lean towards Isaiah. In some ways, it's, it's unimportant because the, the point still comes across. 62 verse 1 says this, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. You hear this declaration at the start of 62 uh, that, it's, I love that twice over it says, for Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake. This means for the people of God's sake. The person who is speaking is saying, I am so committed to the people of God that I'm not going to be quiet about this. Until God's intentions for God's people have become the case, I'm going to continue to plead and to talk and to pray about this. This is someone that has said, I'm not just dating the church, I'm married to the church. This is someone that says, I'm not like interested in the people of God. I'm all in with the people of God. He's saying for Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, let it be the case. And by the conclusion of this of this thought chunk, these verses, by verse six and seven, this is what God says in conjunction with this word. He says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. 
You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Do you hear this bold language? The reason I call it tireless petition. Do you hear it? He says, take no rest and give God no rest. Be so committed to the people of God that you would say to sit back and see God's people do the mechanisms of church but not experience the pointed presence and power of God that causes salvation to spring up and lives to be transformed. He's saying, I want to set watchmen, people who remember God and care about his glory. They're gonna say, God, we're not gonna quit praying for this until you show up and you move like that. You see, he's talking about tireless petitioning of the presence of God, people that trust him enough and say, we believe that you're alive. And on the move in the world, why not here? Why not now in our midst? For Jerusalem's sake, for Zion's sake, for the people of God's sake, would you move in their midst in power? This is the invitation of the season. This is the sort of thing that we want to continue to lean in on. Jesus, when he's teaching his people to pray in Luke 18, he says, but will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he comes? I long for us to be the sort of family together that says, we will take God at his word. We're gonna pray and petition the Father to do things through the announcement of his Son that we could never accomplish by our own might, but that we will certainly celebrate and delight in together. This is why if you've been around, you've tasted a little bit of it. If you're new around here, this is what's coming. In the month of February, we take a full month for communal prayer and fasting. We're doing this this year in conjunction with 100 plus churches in the city that are leaning in on this vision. It's called Awaken Houston. And if you're on our email list, starting February 1st, you will get an email every day, each morning from different leaders and the life of Jesus' church from across the city that are calling their communities to say, God, we long for this that you would come and restore us and encourage us and pour out your love on us and that where we feel at the end of ourselves that you would set us free to be wheeling like birds and experience all that you've purchased in Jesus. We don't want just a little bit. We want all of you. You see, we're gonna pray together that way in the month of February. I'd encourage you to mark your calendars for the first Wednesday of February. Our prayer gathering in the month of February is going to be a really special one. We'll have about 10 churches from inside the loop in Houston that are all gathering together to pray. We'll be commissioning two church plants that are launching inside the city as we continue to want our geography saturated with gospel proclaiming churches that are raising up awareness of the, of the good news of Jesus. So we're going to get to pray over those communities and their planters. We're going to get to know them. I'd love for you to come hear from them. Please be with us on the first Wednesday for our prayer gathering in February. And for the first time as part of our discipleship track, we're offering an effective prayer training as part of D-Track. So if you want to jump in in the early Tuesday mornings to, to learn in this season, what does it look like to petition the Father tirelessly? We believe that it that's the flame that as it joins in with the proclamation of the gospel. It's we're the sort of people that announce frequently Jesus is king and petition the Father. Something unique happens there. And I want to finish by exploring this question. Why? Why is it 
that those two things together are like oil and flame, dynamite and spark? Why is it that they work in conjunction in this way? And baked into the center of this text is this reality. It's because the Father and the Son are deeply committed to you. The reason that boldly announcing the Son and tirelessly petitioning the Father leads to a radical uprising of the Spirit of God is because the Father and the Son are deeply committed to the church. They're deeply committed to this work together. Within himself, this is who God is. Look at chapter 61, verses 8 through 11, and hear this unique moment where the Father speaks in verse 8 and 9, and the Son speaks in verse 10 and 11. And I want you to hear the heart of God emerging as both of them speak in concert with one another. For, that's a grounds clause. So verses 1 through 7. Why is it that the good news is going to work in this way in the lives of the brokenhearted? This is why. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery. I hate wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them. They are an offspring that the Lord has blessed. And then the voice changes. It's no longer the Lord speaking, but now it's the same voice of the Messiah that was speaking in verse one. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all of the nations. Do you hear it? The Father and the Son are both saying, we are deeply committed to seeing this thing that you're praying for and that you're announcing becoming a reality. We're committed because this is the character of the Father. This is the character of the Son. And their commitment is expressed in such enthusiastic language. It's the language of a wedding. It's the language of the planting of a garden. The son says, when you look at the wedding and you see the priest all pre- pre- uh, presentable and looking nice, the, the pastor up front, you see, you see the groom, you see the bride. He says, I'm like all of them. All of the preparation, the beauty that went into it. Did you hear it? The son is saying, It doesn't matter if you're talking about the bridegroom or the priest or the bride. This is how I've been presented. He's like, I am the sum total of all the preparation and the beauty for your greatest celebrations. This is how I feel about this plan that we have for you. Father and son committed to it. And it raises the question even further. Why are they so committed to this? In chapter 62, verses 2 through 5, answer it. We'll finish here. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty. This is is God speaking to you, the people of God. You will be called a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. Your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you. 
and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Why are the father and the son so profoundly committed to your renewal, to the pouring out of the fires of revival in such a way that you know God's love in pressing ways that liberate you? Why? Because he delights in you. He rejoices over you. Don't dull it and don't deny it. Don't explain it away. Listen, the Father delights in you. The Son delights in you. I would invite you to allow your imagination to take you to the moment where the Father and the Son in this text are hatching a plan for your redemption. That's what they're doing here. The Father says, I'm committed to righteousness, I'm committed to justice. And I delight in these people. I'm coming for them. I want to set the brokenhearted free. And the son looks back in 61 and verse 10, and he says, well, Father, I delight in you. If this is your plan, I'm in. And I almost imagine in my, in my letting my imagination run the father and the son in eternity past with a deep wellspring of emotion as they recognize together this plan that we're agreeing to is going to cost us dearly. The father looks at the son that has been in his bosom for all of time that he has cherished above all. He says, if we're serious about this, it's going to mean I'm going to have to lay you down. And the son looks back and he says, but father, I delight in you and we delight in them. Listen, I know I'm going to have to become poor. I know my heart is going to be shattered. I know that I'm going to be led away like a captive. I know that they're going to bind me. I know that my spirit is going to grow faint. I know that there's going to be dishonor and shame for me. But we delight in them. Father, we love them. And they together decided on a plan that was going to thrust a sword into the very heart of God. Father, Son, and Spirit committed to your redemption. You see, the Son in resurrection glory, the Father clothed him with robes of salvation and righteousness so that the one that absorbed all of the brokenness could say to you with ruddy cheeks, alive and full, hear this good news. I've paid the price. You're liberated. You're set free to wheel freely in the sky. The dungeon doors are open and you're free to go. The reason that the proclamation of the Son and the petitioning of the Father like the Holy Spirit blaze that changes the landscape of our lives is because he's deeply committed to it. At great cost to himself, he's already agreed on it. He delights in you. If you came in this morning feeling like you're captive. Turn your gaze upon Jesus and know that he has opened the door wide. <laughs> it's good news. Let me pray for us. Thank you. 
Father, Son, Spirit, our triune God, we adore you. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf, the delight that you take in us, your commitment to us. It's stunning. I pray that you would loose our tongues, that for those of us who have tasted the good news of the gospel, that we would not be silent that we would boldly and regularly announce the good news of the gospel that has been so transformative for our hearts. And I pray that you would make us people that know what it is to petition the Father without rest, that we would say we will take no rest, we will give you no rest, because God, we want this good news to radiate out. Those that are brokenhearted, those that are struggling and captive in our city, I pray, God, that we would pray with anticipation that you could move in power in our midst, that we could together taste the renewing work of your power being displayed. We ask, God, we ask boldly that you would come and revive your people, move in our midst. We bless you and thank you in advance for what you intend to do. We pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.